Hello and welcome to Balagan, the podcast that will put things in order for a better understanding of Israeli politics. I am Kobe Cohen, a former political advisor and currently a political columnist and Israel educator. In many of my conversations with my American friends and family, I have noticed that Israeli politics is challenging to understand and quite blurry at times. So I'm here to explain how it works, who are the different players, and why the different players are acting the way they act. So if you're interested in getting what's happening in Israel, that's your place. My podcast will be thorough and brief, with many guests, giving you the best information about Israeli politics and society. It will deal with the structure of the political system in Israel, the different groups of interest, the players' history, along with analysis of what is happening today. I promise to be as objective as possible and guarantee it will always be interesting. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Balagan. The corona crisis uncovered sensitive challenges, the ultra-orthodox community's separatism from the state of Israel, refusing to integrate in modern life while using their political power to budget their way of living. Of the out-of-the-state's budget, growing in numbers yearly and becoming a challenge for the state of Israel. How long can this situation continue? Professor Dan Ben-David, a world-known researcher of economic growth and development and Israel economy, the president and founder of the Shoresh Institution for Socio-Economic Research, is here with me today to discuss the challenges with the Haredim and what the state of Israel needs to do in order to overcome those challenges. So welcome, Danny, and thank you for joining us today. And I would like to ask you, uh, where do we begin? What was the changing point in the Israeli-Haredim relations? I think the turning point, formal turning point, I guess one could say, is in 1977. In the background, things already manifested themselves earlier, which created a certain environment for 1977. When Israel was founded, it was founded as a Jewish nation, There was no separation between religion and the state. And as such, the country gave basically a monopoly to the uh, ultra-Orthodox to define who is a Jew and who isn't a Jew. And that was the big debate in the early decades of Israel to define who's a Jew, who's not a Jew, and so on. That was issue number one. Issue number two is because of uh, the urgency to build a country under the circumstances that there were, Um, our founding fathers didn't create a constitution so that it would be very difficult to overturn the primary concepts upon which Israel was created. It was created primarily by secular Jews who left religious families, and in their vision, it was a secular country. In most people's vision, it was a secular country. So they didn't see much harm in letting the religious uh, define uh, who is a Jew and who isn't. Because the religious were a relatively small part of the population. Then, if we now do fast forward, the other major catalyst in creating the pivot in 1977 was the Yom Kippur War in 1973, which was a, a huge traumatic experience for Israelis. And it led, over uh, the course of the next four years, basically, to the end of the domination of the Labour Party in Israeli politics. And uh, a movement toward uh, Menachem Begin and the Likud. Begin in '77 won the election, and this was the first time in Israeli history 
that the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, became a part of the governing coalition. And that has not changed since 1977, with the exception of a few very minor episodes. 43 years have elapsed since 1977. The Haredim were not in a coalition only in three. They were in a coalition in 40 of these years. And as such, they became the kingmakers, because if the right wing didn't want to work with the left wing, and the left wing doesn't want to work with the right wing, and they're always fighting about the Palestinians and about the territories and about occupation and all of the things that basically determine what kind of an Israel there will be in the future, we kind of didn't notice that we're mortgaging the future by making deals with the Haredim, we're a very small group at the time, at the time. and making deals with them that we're mortgaging our future eventually. The money began to flow in huge quantities to the Haredim, not just to the Haredim, Israel has a severe problem of non-transparency of the budget. So we don't know how much we're spending on different topics. You take something that is purportedly not even controversial, education. How much do we spend on education? The entire education ministry budget doesn't go only to education because whoever's minister wants to finance all of his pet projects that have nothing to do with education. While other ministers in non-education ministries put money into education too. So we have no idea what's the total amount going to education. Now, magnify that several fold and you can start asking questions. Well, how much do the territories cost us? How much do the Haredim cost us? All of these things that it's fine if you want to give priority to a certain group. I mean, that's what a democracy is about. But it means that you also need to know how much. Do you want to give someone 10% more, 30% more? or 75 times more. How much more do you want to give them? And if we don't know, all we know is we just want to give them more. Then it means that we have a smaller blanket for everything else. And that smaller blanket for everything else meant that the entire country of Israel pivoted in the 70s. It's really amazing. If you look at the growth path of Israel, we were on a very steep and very steady growth path until the 70s. The Yom Kippur War moved us away but ever since 73, we never recovered. We went to a much shallower, a much slower growth path. Again, straight like a ruler. Even though we had inflation and wars and aliyah, nothing affected this path. You can see it in hospital and healthcare, the number of beds per capita in Israel. We managed to increase the number of hospitals and beds in the 50s and 60s in Israel at the same rate of a phenomenally growing population. In the 70s, it changed. And we have just a, a free fall ever since 1977 in the number of beds per capita. So today, pre-corona, we have the highest occupancy rates in hospitals in Israel. So we had no degrees of freedom when the corona hit. So you can see across the board in all of the main infrastructures in Israel, a shift away from things that serve the nation, the entire nation, to things that serve smaller sectoral groups. And one of these groups was the kingmakers, the Haredim. And again, although we don't know how much money went there, we can identify a number of very interesting uh, observations. For example, while fertility rates in all of Israel have fallen for all of the groups, for secular and religious, it's been pretty stable. It hasn't really fallen, even risen a little bit in recent years. But in general, fertility rates in Israel have fallen, except for one group, the Haredim. In 1980, an average Haredi family had six children per family. 
by uh, 1990. In one decade, it went from six children to seven children. They added a full child to the family. And then in the 90s, they added another half child. They went to seven and a half children per family. Then in the early 2000s, we had the second intifada, a huge recession. We were on the brink of collapse. And one of the things that Israel does when it's on the brink of collapse is it gets its act together and fixes things. In fact, one of the primary people who fixed things then was Netanyahu in that he reduced government expenditures in a way that we had reached five shekels to the dollar in 2002. Money was just leaving the country because nobody had any confidence in the Israeli economy. And it stabilized. But one of the prices was that there was a huge slashing of welfare benefits and all kinds of money that went to Haredim, whether it was visible money, you know, in budget items, or under the table money to all kinds of NGOs and all kinds of groups that acted as a major vessel of money to the Haredim. A lot of that was cut. And as a result of that, immediately thereafter, you see a very sharp drop in the fertility rates of Haredim from seven and a half to six and a half. As they were again in power in recent years, the money again began to flow, this time with Netanyahu as prime minister, and uh, their fertility rates have been steadily rising in recent years, and they've surpassed seven again. Again, the entire country is reducing fertility rates, the Haredim is rising. When you look at male employment, for example, we have this conception in Israel that while Haredim work in America, they work in other countries, we're special. They never worked in Israel. They never will work. So why even press the issue? So we're very myopic. We don't see anything beyond the tip of our noses. In fact, Haredim men did work in Israel in 1979. Right after they joined the coalition, over 80% of Haredim men worked. Immediately thereafter, there was just the share of uh, employed Haredim plummeted, and it fell to less from above 80% to less than 40% over the next few decades. When the money stopped coming after the Intifada, you could see a rise in employment rates. When the money again started to come, you could see that leveling off in recent years. So while we don't know how much money, we do have a very significant indication that it had a major effect on their lifestyles. I would like to ask you another, another thing is about their level of education. I mean, the Haredim used to be more integrated in the general population in Israel. I mean, I remember my father's stories that he had Haredim serving with him, you know, in the army. And I remember a few uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, police officers, for example, when my parents were officers. But it seems that over the years, you see the Haredim more and more segregated from the general population. And also when you look at their educational system, it's not a sustainable system and it's not suitable for the 21st century. What's the implications of that on Israel's economy and Israel's society? Well, what you remember as a kid and what your father told you has to do with the fact that before the end of the 1970s, over 80% of Haredim were employed. So maybe some were policemen, and some were employed elsewhere. Once the money began to come, they didn't have to work anymore because they could actually finance lifestyles of non-work. And then it's also related to the education question, which I believe is the fundamental issue. I mean, in general, Israel's education system in core subjects, if you take a look at the most recent international exam, PISA exam, 
in math, science, and reading, Israel's children score below all of the developed world country on average. But that we do without even including the Haredim in the exam because the Haredim don't study the material. So they don't take the exam. Had they taken the exam, it would be even worse. I mean, it can't be worse than last place. However, you could have a much lower score. We are the only country in the developed world that allows parents to deprive their children of a basic right to a basic education. It's the law everywhere. It's just illegal not to give your kids a core education in every other developed country, except Israel. And first of all, they are going to pay a huge price for it. They're already paying. One of the reasons why it's more difficult for them to work, it's not just that they get money that enables them not to work. It's that the boys, for example, study a core curriculum only until eighth grade, nothing, no core curriculum after eighth grade. But even the core curriculum until eighth grade isn't a real core curriculum. It includes no science at all, no English, very rudimentary math, if at all. Now look at this population group when Corona hits, okay? They have no capacity to learn anything beyond what their leaders are telling them. And as a result, they don't know science, so they don't understand what a virus can do, how infectious it can be, and how it can kill you. They don't understand English, so they can't go to foreign sources of information on the internet and find out information that may contradict what leaders are saying. And they don't know math, so they don't know what an exponential function looks like, so that if I infect two people and they infect each one of them two people, everything multiplies within weeks. It immediately brings down an entire country. They have no clue about these things, and their politicians are even more cynical than ours. And they borrowed, I guess, a cliche from American politicians, keep them barefoot and pregnant. That is the motto, I guess, of the Haredi politicians. They're the most cynical people that you can imagine. They insist on depriving their children of anything that would give them the freedom to choose anything but the lifestyle that was chosen for them. Because if you don't receive the education and you don't receive the tools, you have very limited options afterwards to go in a modern economy and work. Even if you want to work, where are you going to work? What are you going to do? So some of the geniuses can overcome it, but that's not a solution for an entire population group. And then when you combine the education with the demography, then you're getting something that's combustible, something that will bring down not only their society, but the entire state of Israel. Today in Israel, only 7% of the adults are Haredim. Haredim were 12% of the population, but only 7% of the adults. But they're a fifth, 19%, almost a fifth of the children. So you can see how fast these things are going. And according to the Central Bureau of Statistics projections, in just two generations, the grandchildren of today's children, half of the children in Israel will be Haredim. So who's going to pay taxes? Who's going to work? We're going to be the physicians, you know, the architects and engineers. Who's going to protect Israel? Basically, in general, we have a problem coming down the pike here that if we don't deal with it now, there's a demographic, democratic point of no return. The things that are today extremely difficult to pass in the Knesset, because we're not able to get our acts together and work together, it's just going to be impossible to pass at one point. And that point may be very near. We may have actually passed it. Maybe things that are very difficult to do, it's difficult because it's already impossible. 
I refuse to accept that it's impossible, but uh, that's where I become religious. And I believe the fact that I believe in Israelis and I believe in our ability to overcome uh, hurdles. But basically, the default right now is a situation where no one is willing to take on the Haredim and basically give them a, a decent education. And you can see it now when their leaders demand that they be exempted from all of the coronavirus regulations. So the entire country is clamped down. They want a license basically to kill their own population, to have their own population kill each other, while their own population doesn't even understand what's being done to them. And we enable that, we allow that, and we are basically getting the strongest warning signal that we can. Take a look at what's happening today because you're looking at the future. It may not be a coronavirus, but if we have a third world economy, a third world economy cannot support a first world army. Without a first world army in that neighborhood, we will not survive physically. And I want to ask you, you were mentioning the politicians and you said they are cynical. But the politicians themselves, I mean, the members of the Knesset, it's hard to call them civil servants, but the Haredim are actually their own civil servants. And they serve the rabbis, who are, in a way, you can say, cynical personalities behind the politicians. They only do what they are told. And when I'm looking at all of the budgets poured, it still doesn't allow the Haredim to live in wealth. I mean, they're still one of the most poorest people in Israel, and they live in tiny apartments. And there are problems that, you know, when you look at cities like Bnebrak or, or the neighborhoods in Jerusalem of Mea Shearim, they are really condensed with people. So there are real challenges, for example, with COVID, that they can come and say, hey, listen, it's impossible for us to occupy a curfew or to keep people closed in, in the houses, because if there are 10 people, 12 people in the house, for sure they have a bigger uh, chances of getting COVID. So if we're trying to balance between their way of living and where we want them to be, there's got to be a change, not only with the policy, but with the reaction of their leaders. So how do you see a shift in that term and what will make it possible? With regard to the shift, let's put that off for a moment, you're correct. They live in very congested conditions, but who's responsible for that? The only way that anyone can stop being poor is to get a good education. Some, nothing will help and you need to help them. But the majority of people, if you give them a good education, they have the ability to finance their own lives and live in the conditions and also determine the size of the family that they want. I mean, at what point do people start taking responsibility for what they're in? Okay, so with all due respect, you know, they are in the situation that they're in because that is a situation that they demanded to be in, and we enable them to create it by depriving them and their children of the education that they need to get themselves out of that situation. So, you know, you can't hold this, you know, stick by both ends. Cry that you have a problem because you created the problem, okay? Don't create problems, and then you won't have to cry about it. But then... Having put that aside, okay, there is a problem. They are living in congested conditions, and it's certainly difficult. We did a study at the Shoish Institution, my colleague, Professor Yalkin from the Hebrew University, and what he did was he dissected what are the primary differences between towns in Israel with high infection rates 
in towns in Israel with very low infection rates. He divided all the towns into five equally sized groups by infection rates, okay? So they have the top fifth and the bottom fifth. What are the primary things that graded the higher infection rates in the top fifth and the most infected? And of course, one of the things is more congested conditions. But this is an econometric study that enables us to dissect all of the different determinants. So we can look at just the contribution of living in congested conditions. That contributes to about 12% of the gap. But having a sizable share of Haridim in the community, that contributed to about 40% of the difference. In addition to the issue, because other communities live in congested conditions, there are other towns that are not Haridim with congested conditions, so they do have higher infection rates. But when you look at the behavior of the Haridim and the total disregard to any of the laws and regulations to try and contain the virus, now, all of the schools in Israel are closed, except for the Haredim, who said, no, it doesn't apply to us. And we open up all these issues. And the hell with you. So there is an issue here that has a lot to do with the fact that you have a society within a country that, on the one hand, seemingly repudiates modern society, but they really don't. Because when they're sick, they don't go to a rabbi. They go to a professional MD that studied somewhere. And when they live in a house, they live in a house that an architect designed and an engineer built and not in a cave or in a tent like in Abraham's day. So with all due respect, they really want all of the benefits of a modern society without having to pay for any of that. And we haven't even spoken about who's actually defending the very lives of everybody in Israel. A large part of the Jewish population is defending but it doesn't include the Haredim. It's called the free rider problem in economics. That they're just living at the benefit of others. They live on a welfare system, which they don't contribute to. Not only them, by the way, there's a huge income gap in Israel, so big. Again, it's much, the Haredim are a major part of a much larger problem, which are major income inequality in Israel. Half the population in Israel is so poor, they pay no income tax. They don't reach the bottom rung of the income tax ladder. 92% of all the income tax comes from the top two income deciles, where the ninth income decile, one of these two income deciles, the average income in that decile is just 18,500 shekels gross, which is about $5,000. Millionaire. Millionaires are also part of that, although the very rich find loopholes in that thing. But the entire onus of the tax base of income taxes is sitting on 20% of the population. 92% of the income taxes come from 20% of the population. And it's rising. In the year 2000, it was 83%. So it's gradually rising. And we're putting a greater and greater strain on young people who are educated, who are skilled, who have options not to remain in Israel. And we're seeing a growing drain from Israel it was reversed during the coronavirus, at least temporarily. So this is our opportunity because a lot of Israelis came home. But if we don't get our act together here, that may become a tidal wave out of Israel afterwards if they see no hope for the future of the country. So that's in general with regard to the congestion and the infection. They bear the responsibility for the situation that they're in. Okay, There's no other way of putting it. How do you fix it? Money. One of the disadvantages of being really, really poor, that you're entirely dependent on people who are not poor, okay? And the rest of Israel, in general, is not poor. 
and we finance lifestyles of non-work. We don't have to finance lifestyles of non-work. But that means that the left has to start working with the right. And we have to start working together because it's not religious against secular. And it's not right-wing against left-wing or Arab against Jew. We're basically arguing incessantly about the placement of chairs on the deck of the Titanic. But eventually, we're going to hit this iceberg. So either we deal with it now, and we had a huge warning signal with Corona, to start working together and basically stop a lot of these funds from reaching the Haredim and saying, look, you want funds? You open schools. You teach a full core curriculum. You want to have higher education? You pay for higher education. We don't pay a yeshiva kid or a shiva student to go to study in yeshiva because he's no different than a university student that has to pay for tuition in university. We've reached the ultimate of absurds where our students, as the non-Haredi students in Israel, have to pay tuition to go higher education, and their students receive a stipend. Not only receive free education, they receive money for going to yeshiva. So we have a lot of control over their lifestyles. We just need to say, enough. This game has to end before you kill yourselves and you kill us with you. So it goes back to the politicians. You mentioned 2003, the Minister of Finance was uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who is, if I remember correctly, since 2010, is serving as the Prime Minister of Israel. 2009. 2009, right. So what I'm wondering is, what did he see in 2003 that he doesn't see now, or he's just ignoring the problem? No, I think the question is a little bit different. It's not what he saw in 2003 that he didn't see in 2009. It's what did he see in 2005 or six when there was the next election and the Likud only got 12 votes or 12 Knesset members where he understood that what he did was extremely unpopular with the people who voted for Likud in the past. And Kadima got a lot of votes and another, I think it was 2005, 2006. And Netanyahu was killed in that election. A lot of it had to do with a lot of anger against him as what he did in finance minister. So my guess is that he understood if he wants to remain in political power forever, his solution, I don't agree with it, but his solution was instead of making a coalition with the center and the left and saving the future of Israel, because he really does understand this stuff. He's a really smart guy. But instead, he voted for his own political stability and went with the Haredim and ever since, except for a little short period in the middle when they were out. And that's why he also dissolved the government to get them back in. But he's termed them consistently his natural partners. But they're nobody's natural partners. They're not even their own partners because they're basically demolishing their own lifestyle. It's not sustainable. But they're not only demolishing their own lifestyle, they're demolishing the future of the state of Israel. But you're saying, we can argue that uh, Netanyahu technically, from what you're saying, is sacrificing the future of Israel for the present, for his regime. But on the other hand, people will tell you, hey, we have Iran, we have Hamas, you know, we have bigger threats to the state of Israel than just the Haredim not working and uh, not gaining any core education. What do you have to say for that? I think that there are maybe one or two other politicians in Israel that are not in the right wing that are also concerned about Iran and the rest of the other uh, 
neighbors around us that uh, constitute a, a danger. I think that right-wingers don't have a monopoly on that concern. And in fact, it has nothing to do with right-wing, left-wing, how to deal with Iran, for example. Palestinians are an issue of the territories or not, okay? But in general, I don't think there's a big argument between left and right about, you know, in a war, we're all together. There is no left and right. And the enemy doesn't uh, distinct anybody. Yeah, <laughs> He doesn't make a distinction. Either. We don't ask the person beside us, what did you vote for? We recognize we're all Israelis in the same boat. And we're not right-wingers first or left-wingers first. We're Israelis first. And as such, we need to worry about the future of Israel. And again, Netanyahu is one of the more gifted politicians that we've ever had in terms of his personal abilities. And the very fact that he was willing to squander our future and basically sell it for political expediency to mortgage our entire future. For the past 11 years, almost 12 years now, that he's been prime minister, except for the corona, so move. Erase 2020. But um, until uh, 2020, Israel's economy was doing okay. I mean, it wasn't spectacular, but it was doing okay. The high-tech sector was doing spectacularly. Money was flowing into Israel. We didn't have wars. We had little things, but we didn't yeah, have conflicts, any existential so wars that we really were concerned about whether Israel would survive. Okay? We had one of the most stable periods in our history that we could have changed everything. We had time to deal gradually with the Chavidim, for example. You don't have to hit them with a baseball bat on the head. We could have done it gradually and brought them into the picture gradually and made it clear to them they're part of Israel too. They're not anti-Israel. They just don't think ahead. They believe that God will solve all their problems. And it didn't work out so well for the Jewish people in the 1940s. So I wouldn't exactly count on that solution for this uh, period either. If we don't help ourselves, if they don't help themselves, we won't survive. And that's on us. And what Netanyahu did was he mortgaged that opportunity for his own political expediency. And for that, I don't think he'll ever be forgotten. In addition, there are a few other things that he apparently won't be forgotten for, is he either? But uh, that's one of the big ones. That will go down in history as one of the biggest failures, I think. His natural partners are the other people who are more educated, more skilled, or basically holding the entire nation of Israel on their shoulders. And some of them are right-wing, some of them are left-wing, but they're the vast majority of people in Israel. We can go for hours on that topic, and we will definitely have more uh, episodes in the future. I would like to end with something more optimistic from your end. If you have any message to our listeners, there is any way or something they can support the state of Israel of changing its route or maybe reaching out to the politicians from their parties, asking them for a change, asking the people of Israel to wake up or what needs to be done and how people can help. Well, I think the, the most important thing is for anyone who cares about Israel, whether they live in Israel or outside of Israel, To wake up and see the big picture. And that's why we created Shoish, by the way. Shoish in Hebrew means root. What are the root, the primary socioeconomic problems that will determine if Israel will even be in several decades or won't? Because that's where we're at today. It's not that there are no other problems. 
but we created it specifically for that purpose because we are concerned that Israel is in danger of, of not surviving the next century, basically. And so we do the research, but we try to get it out to as many people as possible. And we, we give about 80 talks a year in the press quite a bit as well with the material. The whole idea is to change the mindset, to stop thinking in terms of right-wing, left-wing, religious, non-religious, Arab, Jew. Israel is the only home the Jewish people have, and it's precarious situation. It's not guaranteed forever. We have to do something to save it. And that means for us as Israelis to pressure the politicians we vote for to start working with each other and focus on the root showish issues. And for anyone who lives outside of Israel, who supports Israel in one way or another, many people abroad even support political parties and political politicians in Israel, hit them on the head with a baseball bat. Tell them, start working with the other side. You can't continue this, this gap that's growing wider and wider between every little group in Israel. We're like a centrifugal force. And we have to start working together. We do do that in the end, in the final analysis. I gave one example in the Intifada, where we were right on the brink and we pulled back. It wasn't just Netanyahu, it was Sharon who took care of, of business in many respects, and it was others as well. We had hyperinflation in the 1980s because we went crazy with spending like there was no tomorrow. In the final analysis, we came together. Likud and labor formed a unity government and passed an exemplary economic program that's been copied in other countries, how you do it right, how you go from hyperinflation in one year to very, very low inflation, not the lowest inflation, but still went from 450% to 20% in one year. And then eventually we reached uh, Western levels. When our back is to the wall, we get our act together. And we just need to realize that this is a little bit more confounding. It's not as clear. It's like the story about the frog. Throw a frog in boiling water, he understands and he jumps out. You put him in cold water, turn up the heat, by the time he understands. I know, no, I never tried it. Don't yeah. plan. <laughs> but uh, by the time he figures out that, you know, he's going to be cooked, it's too late. He doesn't have the strength. That's our situation right now. We're not in a war, but we have certain population groups, and it's not confined just to the Khalidim, although they're the biggest issue out of that group, about half the children in Israel today getting a third world education. They belong to the fastest growing parts of the population. When they grow up, they're only going to be able to support a third world economy. A third world economy cannot support a first world army. And then we have a major crisis on our hands. So by the time we understand that, it's too late. We need to understand it now. And so part of what we're doing at Shoash, trying to get this message out to as many people as possible. So they have the facts, so they understand the big picture, and so that they can take it, send it to others, make sure that anyone who cares about Israel gets it, and starts uh, pulling us together rather than pushing us apart. And I will add the link to Shoret Institution in our uh, episode details. Danny, it was a real pleasure to have you here, really enlightening, and always a pleasure to hear you. I want to thank you for joining me today. And I want to thank our audience for listening. And I'm looking forward to have you here again. Good to see you again, Kobe. Good to see you too, Danny. Thank you. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. 
If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.